0: Listening to Hotel Bar Sessions Podcast, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. You can find this podcast in all of our episode notes on Al Gore's internet at hotelbarpodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast, where you'll find the Twitter handles of our co-hosts, Rick, Lee, and Jason in the podcast Twitter bio. Hotel Bar Sessions is ad free and listener supported. To keep it that way, visit patreon.com backslash Bar Sessions and sign up to be one of our podcast supporters.
1: Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee. I'm joined, as always, by Jason Reed and Lee Johnson. And today we are talking about bullshit jobs. (laughs) But before we do that, our bartender, who thinks this is a bunch of bullshit, wants to know what are we drinking and what are we ranting or raving about. So, Lee, let me go to you. What are you drinking?
0: Uh, I'm just going to have a dirty martini, dirty vodka martini And today I am raving about vaccines. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now it's a little too obvious to say that I'm raving about the COVID vaccine, but obviously I am raving about the COVID vaccine. And if you don't have your vaccines, you should get them. But today specifically, I'm raving about this new vaccine to fight malaria, which actually was developed using the technology that we use to create the mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. So George Washington University has developed two experimental mRNA vaccines that are, it looks like, highly effective in reducing malaria infection and transmission And malaria is something that kills an estimated 627,000 people every year. So way to go science, way to go vaccines. Jason, what about
2: you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have a coconut water. I really like coconut water as a beverage. I like coconut in many forms. I like it in desserts, (laughs) coconut cream pie. I like it in curries. I'd be happy on Gilligan's Island, really. (laughs) Could you make a radio out of coconuts? Do you put your lime in the coconut and shake <laughs> it all? Can't lime up- coconut. I I thought about coconut water as a mixture. I haven't really experimented with enough. I think there's a drink to be had there. For the listener who can't see,
1: Jason is wearing a coconut brazier.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Again. <laughs> so I'm going to rant. I'm going to rant about what I can only refer to as content creep. Hmm. On streaming platforms, I see a lot of series that really could have worked as a movie. Mm. They just seem padded. And I see this in both narrative things and... And in documentaries, I watched the Bernie Madoff documentary on Netflix. It seemed like you could have cut that down to two hours. Yeah. It would have used a lot less like random stock footage of Wall Street, (laughs) but just the essential points could have been there. When people say that they think of their series as a 10-hour movie, Mm -hmm. I think that's a bad thing. (laughs) I don't think a movie should be 10 hours. And I think there's something to be said for a television series that understands that an episode should have its own arc. And be an episode about something, and not think of itself as a long, long movie broken down into little segments. So bring back the short movie. I bring back documentaries that aren't series.
0: Bring back two-hour movies with ten cliffhangers.
2: <laughs> yeah, and enough with the drone footage.
0: Oh God, mm. yes, loves
2: drone Don't footage they i mean i guess they can get it on the cheap you just send one of those things up and it gives you something to look at other than like people's faces but all the drone footage of wall street or whatever else the case may be it just doesn't do it for so me so i'm racking my brains trying to think beyond like
1: 15 seconds of a birdie Manoff documentary because what more is there
0: than he had a ponzi scheme it collapsed <laughs> So much more. Ten hours more than that. So much more. (laughs) Ten hours more. Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you raving about this week? Today, I'm going to have a white lady
1: and I am raving about bowling. (laughs) Recently, we had an event in the philosophy department here at DePaul where we took our majors and minors and other undergraduates interested. We took them bowling. And what a great thing bowling is because nobody's really good at it. And if you are, you ought to be ashamed of yourself because really, what are you doing with your life? (laughs) So no one has to be worried about that they're not good at it, and you could talk while it's going on. There's not a whole lot of concentration, and it's just a wonderful activity, and so I am raving about bowling.
0: There's a really great episode of Documentary Now, which is this spoof show about documentaries. (laughs) It's called On Any Given Saturday, where they do this bowling version of a football documentary, basically. Highly recommend it. And that's not
1: 10 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) No. No. So, Jason, I know we're talking about bullshit
2: jobs, but what did you have in mind? I mean, in the middle of the last century, it was expected by many people, not just utopians and radicals, the number of working hours would continue to decrease, at least in the developed world. They'd gone from 12 to 10, down to 8, they would get to 6 and even less. Furthermore, it was thought that the mechanization and automation of labor processes would free millions from labor, reducing the need for workers. The opposite seems to have taken place. People are working more and more, so much that the 48 hour work week sounds utopian again. So the question is, why are people working so much and what are they doing? The anthropologist David Graeber has argued the answer is bullshit jobs. <laughs> so what is a bullshit job? Why do they exist? What can we do to get free of them? In short, why is everything fucked up and bullshit?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I could tell this is not going to be a safe for work episode. (laughs) Jason, it occurs to me that from a certain perspective, any work has to be fucking bullshit. (laughs) And so I guess Graeber has something else in mind. So
2: what specifically is he referring to as bullshit jobs? He gives a definition and his definition is quoted, a bullshit job is a form of paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious – That even the employee cannot justify its existence even though as part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. Mm. A couple things about that. One is he really insists the idea that the person doing this job must think it's a bullshit job. Because as he points out in the long book that he wrote about this, is that if you don't add that to the definition, if you ask people what a bullshit job is, they're just going to give you a list of whatever thing it is they think is pointless. In fact, I believe the Financial Times ran a cartoon about David Graeber After this book kind of blew up and above the panel just said bullshit jobs and the picture was a picture of what I assume was David Graeber introducing himself at a party saying, I'm an economic anthropologist. Of course the (laughs) joke was, who has the bullshit (laughs) jobs now? And so I think that's why Graeber insists that person doing it has to think. It's a bullshit job. It can't just be a list of whatever jobs it is because you know we're philosophy professors and if we ask anyone to list bullshit jobs, we might end up somewhere in the top 25 at least. <laughs> but we don't think it's bullshit. So a bullshit job has to be something someone thinks that they are doing something that is pointless and pretending it's not pointless is part of the job. So I'm trying to think of an example that
1: isn't just like from my perspective, a horrific job to have. And for me, that would be any customer service job that entails that you answer phone calls from people complaining about anything. <laughs> Why do you hate the people so? I don't hate the people. I just hate them being around me. <laughs> <laughs> so is there a better example that you could think of of a bullshit job that even the one who's performing it
2: would say this is just bullshit. Bullshit Jobs thing first appeared as a little short essay on Strike Magazine, and it kind of blew up. Like the Mm -hmm. Strike Magazine, a small lefty publication, their website crashed because people were (laughs) sharing it everywhere. And then he wrote a full book follow-up that came out, I think, in 2018. I think he had a Twitter handle where he invited people to give their stories of Bullshit Jobs. In fact, Side note here, Hotel Bar Sessions listeners, we want to hear your bullshit job stories. So yeah. <laughs> tag us on Twitter and tell us your bullshit job stories and we'll respond and- uh, Commiserate. It'll be worth your while. <laughs> so, I mean, he breaks the category down, but I think one of the things he talks about is flunkies. Mm-hmm. Flunkies are jobs where the person is primarily there to make someone else look more important. Mm. He gives the example of receptionists who work in- in offices that don't get a heavy volume of calls, but the existence of a receptionist makes the person on the other end of the line sound more important, mm. right? This is why Better Call Saul fans will know that Saul Goodman answered his phone with a fake voice because it was just his cell phone. You got to have someone between you and the call, but this job doesn't really need to happen. The person could just as easily pick up their own phone, but the purpose of the job is to make the person look more important. Mm.
0: So I kind of want to talk about this definition that Graeber gives where he says, as you said, Jason, that it's really important that the worker themselves see their job as meaningless or pointless, harmful, pernicious, however it was that he described it. Because I think probably for a lot of people, they don't see their vocation as meaningless or pointless mm. or pernicious, mm. but they see the manner in which they get paid, right? Their job as those things. One of my mm. old friends, uh economist, weirdly, uh, whose name is Art Carden, so shout out to you, Art Carden, used to say, I teach for free and they pay me to grade. And this is something that I have carried mm. with me throughout my life in academia. And I think that, you know, just speaking from, our kind of domain. This is how a lot of people think about being in academia. I don't think that my job, I mean, my vocation, sorry, is pointless or meaningless or pernicious. But I think a lot of the things that I actually get paid to do, writing assessment reports, doing evaluations, Mm -hmm. grading, right, are meaningless and pointless and pernicious. So- Like, how do we distinguish between those things, do you think?
1: Well, Lee, your example of the kind of work we do is really telling to me. For people who aren't academics and so aren't teaching in universities, We serve on a ton of committees overseeing the operation of a large part of the university, especially the academic side. Some of us serve on committees on committees. Well, there we go. So once you have (laughs) a committee on committees, that is fucking bullshit. (laughs) But there are very few committees that I'm serving on that I'm not thinking this entire enterprise is pointless. But mm-hmm. as you say, I never think that when I'm in the classroom, never do I think this entire thing is pointless or holding office hours when students come and they have questions and so on. I never feel like it's pointless, but it is that moment in which I feel this is made up and it also has no point and I will add to go back to one of my constant rants that it also serves the function that Jason was pointing to about the receptionist. Namely, the only reason I'm on that committee is to legitimate the job of some associate provost. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, this is where I think the second part of Graeber's definition of a bullshit job comes in, because he sa- he starts it off by saying, okay, it's a form of paid employment that's completely pointless, unnecessary, pernicious, whatever you know, such that even the employee themselves cannot justify its existence. However, he adds, even though as a part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case.
2: (laughs) That's me at every committee meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And Graeber does talk about what he calls bullshit jobs and the bullshitization of jobs, where the job itself teaching has a core function that the person identifies with and that's why they're there. But you find yourself spending more and more time on committees, writing reports, etc. And it does get to another reason why bullshit jobs exist. And Graeber talks about what he calls box checkers as one type yeah. of bullshit job. I don't know if you guys have this, but I have it too. Like and we got huge trouble last semester because we weren't doing it. compliance training. Mm. And compliance training boils down to being like six, eight hours of – videos you have to watch and fill out questionnaires about, I mean, some things that are important and because they're important, it's almost bullshit that they're addressed in a short Mm -hmm. video like sexual harassment or an active shooter on campus. I'm sorry. I learned I have to have a survival mindset. I don't think a short video is going to protect me from an active Mm -hmm. shooter on campus. I'm sorry to say, but of course- This goes back to the box checking, right? The institution wants me to do this not because they actually think this is going to stop sexual harassment on campus, keep people safe from like getting hurt when they try to climb up a pile of boxes or whatever, but because if something should happen, all they want to be able to say is we check that box. If something happens, they can say, oh, we had them do the training and so the box checking is – It's a real problem, and it's a real situation, but the bullshit comes in the fact that the way of responding to it is not at all adequate Mm. to the real situation, and instead, you just get a kind of going through the motions where everyone pretends like we did something important and useful, and we move on having checked that box. I am not joking.
1: Pre-pandemic, the last term we were in person on campus, I'm taking the bus to school, and across The aisle from me is a woman
2: reading a magazine called Compliance Weekly. Right. The essence of (laughs) compliance is complying, right? I mean, they call it compliance because you comply by complying. It's compliance all the way down.
0: So maybe this is a good point just to explain the kind of taxonomy that Graeber offers in his text Bullshit Jobs, which I'm guessing that not all of our listeners have read Mm. all 400 pages of this book. So he gives basically five types of bullshit jobs, two of which Jason has already mentioned. Flunkies, who serve to make their... Superiors feel important. So people like receptionists, administrative assistants, store greeters, etc., box tickers, which Jason just mentioned, who create the appearance that something useful is being done when it's not. Goons <laughs> who act to harm or deceive others on behalf of their employer. Or prevent other goons from doing so. So here he lists people like lobbyists, corporate lawyers, telemarketers, public relations specialists, etc. Duck tapers who temporarily fix problems that could be fixed permanently, which I think like there's really too many to list here, right? (laughs) But he specifically mentions programmers that repair shoddy code or airline desk staff who calm passengers whose bags haven't arrived. And then taskmasters who create extra work for those who do not need it. And there he lists a very broad category, middle management, leadership professionals. So to me, that last category is the whole of academic administration. <laughs> like anything that has vice in front of it, vice dean, vice provost, vice president is a taskmaster.
1: Yes. Yeah. But at least as far as I know, not many vice or associate provosts would say that their job is pointless let alone pernicious. Mm,
0: I mean, have you given them a couple of glasses of Chardonnay? <laughs> really?
1: Chardonnay, you hit that so perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I actually think that the only two associate provosts that I know personally actually do think they're doing important work. And one of them even got a fellowship to go and learn how to be a taskmaster at some other university at the feet of some other taskmaster. And they think this is really important
0: academic work and that they're crucial to the university running. But I mean, seriously, Rick, isn't this the same argument that we make about police, which is that, (laughs) you know, ACAB, because policing itself is bad, right? (laughs) Like if you become a policeman, then of course you're going to think that what you're doing is not bad, but it's a part of the culture of middle management academic administration to think that they're doing something, even though they're just taskmasters or goons or flunkies or whatever. And, you know, apologies to all my personal friends who are in these positions, but, you know, we're making a philosophical argument here.
1: Well, and then maybe we should tweak Graber's definition in a slightly more normative direction, not just that the person themselves knows that the job they're performing is pointless or pernicious, but also they ought to know. If they don't, they ought to know. Mm. And then all of these vice provosts, they ought to know better.
0: listeners we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at hotel bar sessions first if you haven't done so already make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts second hop on over to twitter and make sure that you followed hotel bar podcast there we're at hotel bar podcast and you can find the twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media.
2: So the flip side of this idea that you can have a bullshit job and not know it, or maybe another way to put it in Graeber's terms is one of the people you might be deceiving is yourself about the job, is the other thing that really comes up in Graeber's book that I think is equally kind of dubious, and that is he seems to want to suggest that having a purpose, doing something that's meaningful, not meaningful, but doing something where you're producing a good or service that you understand that people need, offers some kind of psychological compensation. And I really wonder if that's true. I mean, do the people in Foxconn tell themselves, well, iPhones really are useful. They're going to help people do all sorts of things and have all sorts of fun time. They don't think that, I don't imagine, that to produce something useful doesn't necessarily alleviate the alienation. And I say that because I do think that Graeber is offering us a different version of a kind of theory of alienation, that you're alienated not just from the activity, as Marx said, but you're alienated from the purpose of the activity. You think the activity shouldn't be done at all. I can see how that's alienating, but I think he's overlooking that part of Marx's definition of alienation is that it doesn't really matter what you're doing It doesn't really matter if it has a purpose, serving the needs of society. The way you have to do it and the hours you have to spend doing it makes it alienating, even if it had a purpose, so that you could be producing something that you understand people need, like food. People need food, but that doesn't make any difference to you when you're doing it 10 hours a day, bending over, and at such an accelerated rate, you know, keep up with things. You could be alienated from purposeful activity, activity that seems to be useful.
0: I think that's a really important point. You know, when we first discussed doing an episode on bullshit jobs, I thought about my first job, which I worked in a movie theater. I was an usher. You know, I cleaned up your trash after the movies. And I thought, yeah, that was a bullshit job. But after looking into Graeber's definition, I realized that That really wasn't a bullshit job. I mean, even though I didn't like it, you know, and even though I didn't think it had kind of world historical import, the fact was, is that I was, you know, mixing my labor with the materials of the world and I could see the objectification of my labor in the swept up trash that I collected (laughs) at the end of every movie. I think the interesting thing about what Graeber is calling a bullshit job is that it really highlights this difference between objectified labor and alienated labor. So that even Mm -hmm. if it is the case that there's some meaningful objectification, like I can see myself in the object of my labor, that because the process of the production is alienated from me, that I can't justify it.
1: But then wouldn't that entail that any non-productive labor is going to be a bullshit job on Graeber's account. So productive labor would be the objectification. I could see the fruits of my labor and the object produced, but many of the examples we've been using of bullshit jobs have been sort of non-productive labor, right? So the taskmaster, the goon, all of these are not producing anything that you could point to and say, Oh, look, I did this today.
0: No, I think the point here is that even productive labor can be a bullshit job.
1: Good, because I was going to insist on that. Mm -hmm. But this leads me to another question, which maybe is a different version of the same question Jason just asked. And that is, doesn't this notion of there being some bullshit jobs seems to imply that some jobs are not bullshit? And what I heard Jason saying, and this is what I first assumed reading Graeber, is these non-bullshit jobs are ones in which a person can find meaning in their labor. They can take pride in their labor and they go to work and they're like, I love doing this and I'm doing something important and I'm proud to be doing this. But I often worry, isn't that very notion that you ought to work in such a way that you could take pride in it? isn't that most often put forward by people who don't engage in productive labor or maybe labor of any kind? I mean, isn't that a kind of ideology that reconciles labor Mm -hmm. to the really alienated task that it often is. It certainly is in a capitalist society, but as Jason put it, and I love this turn of phrase, but you're paid back in this psychological benefit that you have self-respect and your work has meaning.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the only kinds of non-bullshit jobs under capitalism are jobs that you do not for wages, Mm. right? It really Mm. makes this distinction between jobs as we normally think about them, which is labor for wages and labor as whatever, free conscious activity, as Marx might say. Hmm. But that I
1: think makes me see why something Jason said way back in the introduction is kind of important, namely that if one would start in the late 19th century and look through the 20th century, one would expect that at this point in the 21st century, people would be working like three hours a week because that just seemed to be the trajectory down which (laughs) labor time was moving, fairly consistent reduction in labor time. But it's not. And so then it seems as if part of the function of the bullshittization, (laughs) bullshittification of labor. Bullshititude. (laughs) Yeah. The making bullshit of all labor is precisely on the one hand to put a halt to this decrease in labor time, but also in a sense to invent jobs. Where there weren't any before, because otherwise people might reflect on the conditions of their own alienated labor.
2: Yeah, I do think that sometimes Graeber seems to take it in this direction that bullshit jobs are kind of the busy work that's being handed down to us, right? And that part I think is really, I find that really sort of dubious. But I do think that maybe what he's seeing with bullshit jobs is a different tendency, which is, in some sense, bullshit jobs are jobs that are difficult to automate. Difficult to mechanize and they seem to be proliferating only because so many other jobs are disappearing. Mm. The very question, the framing of a bullshit job presupposes that a job has a purpose. You know, if you go back, like I think during the the heyday of Fordism, you know, if you talk to someone like my grandfather worked in a mill his entire life, if you asked him the work you're doing important or meaningful, Mm. I think his response would be, I have a house. I have money for two kids. I'm going to send my kids to college. We can go on vacation. You know, all those things would come up. And then as far as the meaningful is like, well, there's some people here I like. You know, it's not bad every day. You get to hang out. It's honest work. Yeah, exactly. I think the meaning question is in some sense an emerging question of a particular kind of later form of capitalism where you're supposed to find meaning in your work, not satisfaction because your work makes your life possible. Yeah, so the search for meaning, I think, is itself a kind of – I mean, I think that Graeber has accepted a certain ideological turn of the question, although I do think he's right that people are asking this question. I mean, I think that people are asking, why the hell am I doing this, even if that question – comes with presuppositions that we might want to examine because it's hard to be indifferent to what you spend the majority of your time doing. Mm -hmm. Jamie Woodcock has a book he wrote about a time he worked in a call center called Working the Phones. And he talks about how, you know, one of the really hard issues with like, say, trying to organize a call center is that unlike other forms of work, like as we talked about, you know, academia and vice provost, is that people most of the time have a sense of how their work should be done Mm. and what are all the obstacles getting in the way of that. But when it comes to something like a call center, people just think the job should go away. And that's very difficult when it comes to trying to organize people when there's a certain sense of like – In the best of all possible worlds, Mm. Mm. this job just shouldn't exist because there's very little for people to organize around because they don't identify – they don't want to identify with it, right? It goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like either you believe the job has a purpose, in which case you're gone. You've kind of accepted the terms of it or – You just want it to go away. But to some extent, to be able to organize and mobilize around work, you kind of need to have some attachment to the work to even make that possible, some attachment to how the work should be done.
0: So serious question, given the healthy psychological mechanism for dealing with the alienation of work, right? Like, why isn't it the case that the only way to approach this job is clock in, clock out, do not invest anything of myself in it whatsoever. Do not try to find any meaning or purpose or larger, you know, redeeming factor in it at all. These are the conditions under which we live and this is my lot.
1: And also don't let the boss know that this is how I feel.
0: Yeah, right. Like (laughs) Turn in my reports at (laughs)
1: 11.59. Yeah. I mean, two examples come to mind that illustrate that, Lee. One is, I forget the name of the restaurant and office space where she's not wearing enough flair. <laughs> yeah. Chotsky's. There's nothing about having flair on that helps you serve better or anything like that. And that's part of what makes that job a bullshit job when otherwise, you know, you're fulfilling a need and okay, maybe you don't have to love it, but it at least isn't a bullshit job. The other example is I don't have a car. And I started thinking, you know, maybe I should get a car, but if I get a car, I think I want an electric car but I don't want a Tesla. So I started doing some research on electric cars. And I've honest to God, forget what car company it was. It, it seemed like this was a decent electric car. And I wanted to see if there were any in any showroom in my area to go and look at it and maybe drive it. In order to see that, I had to give them my email address and my phone number. I barely clicked submit. And the phone rang, (laughs) and every dealer in a 100-mile radius was now calling Mm me, hey, I saw you're interested in the Ford, Mm -hmm. how can I help you? And Mm -hmm. I said to one of them, like, I was just doing some research, why are you calling me? And her response was, well, because that's part of my job is to get the information that's coming in, and I'm the one who has to make these initial contacts. And I said, I'm so sorry for you.
0: I mean, I think both the example of the server who is being forced by her restaurant manager or assistant manager probably to wear flair and also <laughs> the middle salesperson or the person between the salesperson and you with the car. Right. Both of those are really evidence of what I'm now going to dub the trickle-down effect of bullshitness, right? <laughs> Which is that the more of these jobs, flunkies, goons, maskers, box stickers, etc., that are created, the more the... Maybe meaningful jobs below them become bullshit jobs. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, sorry to just keep going back to our little corner of the universe, academia. But I think that we've all seen this with administrative inflation in academia over the last several years is that the more administrative positions balloon, the more busy work those of us who arguably were doing meaningful jobs before (laughs) becomes. Like, I mean- Every single piece of my job that is bullshit, I do for a middle management administrative person.
1: hundred percent. I
0: do not do for my students. Yeah. And I do not do for my field and I do not do for the greater learning of humanity.
2: Yeah. That's a hundred percent. I think that gets into one of the causes of bullshit jobs that Graber doesn't talk about. Like one of the things that seems to happen at universities is there is this constant question like, how do we know people are teaching? How do we know students are learning? And because it's very difficult to measure that, can't use the grade as a measure because grade inflation, whatever. It's like that Dr. Seuss story about the b little town they're not getting enough honey and is our bee working hard enough let's get a bee watcher (laughs) Mm. and so they get a bee watcher and the watcher goes out and watches the bee and then like still no improvement well how do we know our bee watcher is working hard enough
0: it's bees (laughs) all the way down bee watcher (laughs) right right
2: Right. and then you get a bee watcher and the last panel of this story is a picture of one little bee on a flower and a long line of people going way off into the horizon and that's to some extent what happens with the university Mm -hmm. and I think it happens with with other types of service work in general because service work too is hard to measure because you can't measure it in terms of turnaround because sometimes it's the right thing for someone to do in a service job answering a call dealing with a customer is to quickly get done with this person and move on. Yeah. But sometimes if they have a complicated problem or they're a difficult person, the right thing to do is spend a lot of time talking with this person. And so because you can't Standardize that measure. You then have to create, as we all know, when you ever talk to a service thing, this call may be recorded or Mm. we're going to ask you to fill out a short questionnaire after this so that there is a constant need to increase evaluations when what one is producing is not a concrete good because, you know, go back to the paper mill. The paper mill can be measured by how many reams of paper it produced at the end of the day. There was no question about that. But when you're producing things like education or a service, there's a constant question about what is one producing and how best to measure it. And that creates this infinite regress of bee watchers to watch and watch and watch. And that's, I think, a lot of what's happened in the university. I think it's a lot of what's happened in service sales too, is that because what they're producing cannot be directly quantified and measured, there needs to be someone to measure And that creates an infinite regress of bullshit.
0: Yeah. And the consequence of this is a job landscape in which a million consultants bloom. (laughs) Right. You know, and I mean, this will be the one and only time you ever hear me use this old adage of, Those who can't teach do, and those who can't do teach. But like, that's what I got to say to the consultants.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But that leads to another point, and this is specific to academia, that I feel like The bullshitification of our jobs has come by universities and colleges taking on management models that the corporate world has already given up because they've seen that they're failures Mm -hmm. and we can't seem to get rid of them. And what I have in mind is something like assessment, which I think is what Jason was talking about in terms of watching the bees and then watching the watcher and then watching the watcher, watcher and so on. So now a department is supposed to have learning outcomes, and now classes have to be assessed on whether they're achieving those learning outcomes. But how do we measure whether a particular student has achieved those learning outcomes? I do that by giving them an A or a B or a C or a D or an F. But now somehow my assessment has to be assessed, Mm -hmm. and then we need a committee to assess the assessment. (laughs) And our university (laughs) gives out an annual assessment award.
0: (laughs) It's bee watchers all the way down, boys.
1: (laughs) Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact, all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. I really like Lee's notion of the trickle-down bullshittiness because that shows that there's going to be either a proliferation of bullshit jobs or what used to be non-bullshit jobs are going to become bullshittier and bullshittier (laughs) because of this trickle-down. And that leads me to wonder, and I'm going to throw
2: this to you, Jason, what can we do about it? Yeah, I think answering that question means confronting the two ways in which we're tied to work. I mean, the one way, obviously, is economically. Like, the reason people keep going to bullshit jobs is they need to eat. Right. And bullshit jobs make that possible, too. But the other part that's, I think, even more difficult to confront is the fact that in our society, we attach a lot of value and worth to work, even if the work is bullshit. If you make money doing something, it is seen as fundamentally worthwhile, Right. I have members of my extended family who always wonder what this philosophy thing was. I was up to with it. When I got a job teaching philosophy, suddenly it became real. Like, oh, it's a real thing. They pay you to do it. It must be Mm. real, right? And so I think that confronting bullshit jobs means confronting both the economic centrality of work and the sort of psychic or ethical centrality of work and recognizing that maybe not all work needs to be done and not all work should be valued. I mean. Not a lot is known about the so-called great refusal, right? People leaving their jobs in the midst of the COVID pandemic. It's maybe more of a scare than anything else. But I do wonder that some of what might have happened in that may have been people leaving bullshit jobs. I hope. Yeah. Because two things happened during that time. One is briefly and for a little bit at least – people had another source of revenue than their work and the relief checks that weren't much and didn't last very long and should have lasted longer. So that was something that happened and people were in some sense compelled to stop doing their Mm -hmm. work and people talk a lot about how they found other things were more worthwhile and they recognized that they didn't want to spend as much time away from their loved ones or whatever and I wonder if that might have interrupted the bullshit jobs thing which is why I think or one reason why I think There's been such reluctance to do anything but get everyone back to work again Mm -hmm. because that little blip in the connection between work and life, I think it scared some people and continues to scare some people in the form of no one wants to work anymore, but it did scare some people and there's a lot is going on right now to make sure that we never have something like that happen again. And
1: talking about the economic necessity of doing bullshit jobs makes me think that there is something lurking behind this. As Lee pointed out a while back in our conversation, some of the bullshitification of work arises in relation to jobs that can't be mechanized. But the flip side is there are jobs that can be mechanized, and that means that the labor performing those jobs, now machines, is less expensive than the labor that was performing those jobs, human beings. And so we as a society should be able to reap the benefits of the mechanization of labor. But of course, those benefits are unevenly distributed. <laughs> and so the people whose jobs have been mechanized are not reaping the benefits of the mechanization of their own jobs. They become forced into bullshit jobs. So I say that this is lurking behind because as mechanization could increase, It may be the case that nobody has to work anymore ever. But from where we sit at this stage in capitalism, I find that hard to believe. And I think what it's going to turn out is we're all going to be in compliance. (laughs) We're all going to be on assessment committees.
0: So I have a couple of things that I want to say in response to this question, what do we do about bullshit jobs? And the first is, and I'm sorry to dunk again on academia, but the first is that academia has got to pick a lane with the message that it's sending because we send students a very mixed message. One is find your passion. And the other is get credentials and get paid. Yeah, There was actually a recent New York Times article. I'm sorry, I forget the title of it or the author, but I'll definitely put it in the show notes here. But there was a recent New York Times article that demonstrated that 11 out of 11, you know, they did an interview. 11 out of 11 college students think going to college is about credentialization which really means getting a high paying job. So I think that that's right. one problem is that we've got to separate those things. I mean, if we're going to be votech schools, you know, the primary job creators, then we can't keep saying what jobs are, are meaningful uses of your labor for yeah. your life. If what we're really doing is saying, here are some credentials that will get you paid in a bullshit job. The second thing is, We saw something post, well, sorry, I was about to say post-pandemic. We are not Mm. (laughs) post-pandemic. Stenographer, please note (laughs) that I said that we are not post-pandemic. But one of the things that we've seen in the last year is this phenomenon, which we've talked about on this podcast before, called quiet quitting. Right. And I think that this is a strategy against bullshit jobs, which is just to say, this is a bullshit job. I'm going to stop pretending like it's a, not a bullshit job. I'm going to stop feeling like I have to keep justifying myself and my time and my labor and my emotional and psychological energy that I'm investing in it. And I'm just going to do what is minimally necessary for me to get paid because that's really all this job is. It's just a means to pay the utility bill. And the grocery bill and the car note for Rick, his Tesla note and whatever. (laughs) I mean, I think that we can see strategies for navigating this phenomenon that we're in. But that said, and i said I only had two things, but here's my third (laughs) thing. And I think we would all agree on this. There's no way out of this under late capitalism. Mm
1: -hmm. For sure. And I think this is perhaps underlying Graeber's argument Bullshit jobs just is another name for late capitalism.
0: For jobs. (laughs) Jobs. Yeah. Right,
1: right. Yeah, bullshit jobs is another name for jobs in late capitalism.
0: To which the middle manager says, bullshit.
1: (laughs) And his manager says, we need to have a staff meeting.
0: And his manager says, can you write a report about that and get it to me by Friday?
1: And his manager calls in a consultant.
0: (laughs) And there you go, the ecosystem of bullshit jobs. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that just
1: shows. And I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of this theory of comedy, but in this case, it's funny because it's true. So true. I think that just proves your point, Lee, that what do we do about it? We can't do anything given the current economic conditions. And so if we want to do something about bullshit jobs, we should do something about our economic form and the social form that is surrounding it.
0: Or we should do something about our psychological investment in the bullshit jobs, which is what I think quiet quitting is. Mm. You can't quit. Right. Nobody can quit. We all got to pay the bills, right? But we don't have to be so personally invested in our jobs as an indicator of our self-worth and our meaning. Right. And that goes back to the point I was making earlier, namely
1: the position that you ought to take your worth and your existential meaning from the job you perform, from your labor, is a position that only one who doesn't have to labor puts forward. Right, And this goes back to Jason's grandfather in the mill. They know they don't have to find meaning in their job. They find meaning in their family. And their job is important because they could build a home for their family and provide an education, put food on the table. That's the meaning, is outside of the world of work. Now work pervades our entire life.
2: The thing you described is a really good point that part of the bullshit job tendency is like you bring more of yourself to work and work becomes more of yourself, right? The phrase people like to use, I don't like this phrase, is quote-unquote work-life balance. <laughs> and I think maybe to some extent, you know, the most bullshit job is the one where someone truly believes that the job is an expression of who they are and of their purpose and meaning. We're heavily invested in what we do. And I think we see on a day-to-day way in which that heavy investment sometimes is used to get us to do more than we might otherwise do. We'll do things like, oh, well, I've already taken on a lot of work this semester, but this really smart student has an interesting idea for a thesis. I'm going to take that on too because it's meaningful and purposeful and so on. You know, we are in some sense at the place where our belief, which I think is well-founded – in the purpose of what we do becomes at the same time a way to get us to do more work. Mm-hmm. You see this over the last year when there were strikes on university campuses. There are some people who just like, oh, but can I like maybe teach? What if I teach my class someplace else? I'll be crossing the picket yeah, line because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. it's right. such a, such a <laughs> yeah. great class and they're such great. You know, it's like, yeah, no, that's the problem. Right. The problem is that you think that shows how deep you are in the bullshit to some extent. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. So true. You know, it's interesting. I raved
1: earlier about bowling and I have to tell the story about something that happened. So I was the first one to arrive at the bowling alley and I walked in and I said to the guy, hi, I'm from the philosophy department at DePaul university. The guy looks at me and he says, I know Rick. And I look at him And he was a former major who graduated in 2017, I think, or maybe even earlier. His passion was sports statistics, especially baseball. And he got a job doing that and then News Corp bought the company he worked for, and then News Corp sold the company to an investment firm who then sold off the pieces, and he lost his job. He's now general manager of a bowling alley, and he seemed really Mm -hmm. happy. (laughs) And there's a way in which that job, from his perspective, was the job with the least amount of bullshit involved Mm -hmm. in it. But a part of me, I have to admit, thought, my God, we're bringing our majors in and we're saying, and you too one day could be the manager of a bowling alley. (laughs)
0: guys, our bartender is telling us this is bullshit and she's ready to go home. So we just want to say this to our listeners. You know, we do this podcast every week and it's just the three of us talking together here on the interwebs (laughs) and we don't get to hear from you very often. Weirdly, podcasting is kind of a lonely activity. We know you're out there. We really appreciate you listening, but we'd also like to hear back from you every now and then. And we kind of thought... What better thing to ask you to reply to than tell us about your bullshit jobs? So (laughs) Jason mentioned this earlier, but obviously we post our episodes every week on Twitter and on Facebook, and there's a comment section or a reply section underneath that. And we'd love it if you would get on Twitter or on Facebook and reply to this episode podcast and tell us your horror stories of bullshit jobs Or if you're feeling particularly hotel bar sessions philosophical, what you think about this conversation.
1: In addition to that, of course, part of the real bullshit of doing this podcast (laughs) is that it costs some money. And so we could sure use your support in defraying the costs of this podcast. You can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We have a lot of levels there that you can subscribe to. And it really, really does help us out a lot.
0: Yeah, and speaking of bullshit jobs, I'm going to dial up a gig worker right now and get us, a, get us a ride home.
2: But is that a bullshit job, though? They're providing a necessary service, driving drunk people safely, saving lives. Uh,
0: Let's also note that you can be happy and doing something meaningful, and it'd also be a bullshit yeah. job. <laughs> but I'll catch you guys next time. Good night. Bye. Bye.